The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. If you would open your Bibles, uh, just in general to the New Testament, we're going to move around a bit this morning. This morning I want to do something a little different. We've been working through Hebrews for a bit now. And our next section of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 is a bit involved and lengthy. And I wanted to put that until next week to get started in. And so today I wanted to do something a little different. Next Sunday morning we're going to be doing a baby dedication in our service. And uh, I thought it would be appropriate for us this morning to uh, spend some time looking at the issue of baptism. Uh, We dedicate babies in our tradition. We don't baptize them as people do in many other traditions. And I sort of grew up with this in my own life. And so I just assume people understand what baptism is and they understand why we do what we do. But I've come to understand that uh, I shouldn't assume people understand these things and that people know the difference. In fact, baptism is a really important thing in the life of a believer. Uh, There's a lot of confusion in the world about uh, what baptism is and what baptism means. Uh, one of my favorite movies <clears throat> uh, is, uh, has a scene where there's baptism in it. It's a funny scene. It's a, a humorous scene. The movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Do you remember that movie? Anybody see that movie? A little George uh, Clooney film. Uh, a hilarious scene with a baptism uh, around it. But there's baptism in other pop culture sort of events and things that we see. And when you see it portrayed in different ways, it's often confusing what's meant or what it's about. Hollywood and the world around us rarely properly teaches us what baptism really is and what it's about. But there's not just confusion in the world about what baptism is. There's really confusion in the church about what baptism is. You look across the landscape of sort of the evangelical Christian world or just the Protestant Christian world, we could just say that. And if you expand out to the Roman Catholic Christian world, then you find that there are multiple denominations with multiple different practices, with multiple different explanations for why they do what they do. Grace on the Ashley is a Baptist church. Uh, The title of our denomination is built off of the very word baptism. We're baptizers. That means something to us. And it means something particular to us. And so this morning I want to uh, sort of walk you through this issue of baptism. I want to give you just a little sort of historical background on baptism, and then I want to just sort of kind of walk through a few things related to that. I want to uh, explain what is the proper meaning of baptism, and we want to look at what is the, the proper mode of baptism. And then we want to look at the proper moment of baptism. So we answer the question, what is baptism? How should it be done? And when should it be done? So that we can hopefully clear out the fog and make some sense of what we understand the scriptures to teach. The question we're asking ourselves this morning is not what has my tradition taught me. It's not what did my parents teach me. It's not what was practiced when I was growing up, wherever it was that I grew up. The really question And the only question that matters in relation to this or any doctrine should be, what does the Scripture teach? What does the Bible tell us about this matter? 
And so I seek this morning to sort of make the case from Scripture of what baptism is, how it ought to be done, and when it ought to be done. The goal, of course, is not simply informational. It is informational. I want you to understand intellectually these things and to be clear on them. But secondarily, I want you to be able to look at your life and ask yourself the question, am I walking in obedience to the Lord Jesus? Am I walking in obedience to the written Word of God in my own life in this particular area? Have I really understood what baptism is? Have I been through baptism, submitted to that in my life for the proper reason and at the proper time? And so those are the things we're looking at this morning and the things that we're asking ourselves. Now, there's a sort of a backdrop to New Testament believers' baptism that we find in the history of the church. Uh, You go all the way back to the Old Testament, and you see God's work with the nation of Israel. And when you look back at the Old Testament law, you see what are sometimes called Jewish ritual cleansings. Have you read about that in like the book of uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, God's law? Uh, when it, when, when the, the Old Testament is describing for us how worship is to take place in the temple, all these rules and regulations about what is supposed to go on at the temple, what the priests are supposed to do, when they're supposed to do it, how the people are to approach the temple, and how they're to act when they're in there. And in the mix of all that, you find a sort of a mixture of ceremonial washings. There were certain times when people were to go through a ceremonial washing. Uh, This had symbolism and it had reason. It was an important part of worship in the Old Testament. It was an important part of worship in the Law of Moses. We read read about it really from Exodus through Deuteronomy. The priests were uh, particularly concerned about ceremonial washings. And this whole system of washings was designed really to show two primary things. It was to teach the people lessons about sin. And it was to teach them lessons about how it could be forgiven. It was to teach them that sin was real and that sin could be washed away. That there was a means for that. And so the washings really in general were sort of an object lesson to to Old Testament Israel. Dirt symbolizing sin, washing symbolizing the cleansing that comes uh, from God. The forgiveness that comes from Him. And just as the, the priests were responsible for going through these things, the people under certain circumstances were responsible to do so as well. Now, some folks will try to make a connection between Old Testament ceremonial washings and New Testament baptism. I don't see any connection between these two things. The differences are really significant. The Old Testament ceremonial washings uh, were always referred to in the Bible as washings or as bathings. They're never called a baptism in any way, shape, or form. Those washings were self-applied. That is, a person would go and do it to themselves. Those washings were things that were to be done repeatedly over and over and over again as a part of worship. And they really only symbolized the holiness of God, the purity of God, and man's sinfulness. And so I don't think there's much of a connection, even though they both involve water. Another Old Testament picture of this that sometimes sort of sets the backdrop is what was called Jewish proselyte baptism. And that was, even Old Testament Jews would practice this a sort of a baptism. When someone would convert to Judaism, they would go through a ceremony that included a proselyte baptism. That was someone converted to Judaism. They would be baptized as a part of their welcoming into the Jewish body of faith. It was done upon their conversion. And then there was another kind of baptism. 
there was a transitional baptism that happened sort of in the gap between when the Old Testament and the New Testament were coming together. We see this in Matthew chapter 3. It was a baptism that was performed by John the Baptist. It was a particular baptism that took place at a particular time in the history of church in a transitional period between the Old Covenant and the New. And in Matthew chapter 3, we see this where we we find an encounter that, that sort of exposes the reality of this sort of transitional baptism. Matthew tells us in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sin, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So John the Baptist is preaching. He's preaching a message of repentance that people needed to repent, to to turn from their sinful ways. And John's whole ministry was a ministry that was ordained by God for one particular purpose. It was to set the stage for the coming Messiah. It was to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John's message of his preaching and everything that he did was really a part of God's preparation for the nation of Israel to receive the Messiah who was to come. And so John's message was one that people needed to turn from their sinful ways and their rejection of God, and they needed to prepare their hearts for the Messiah who was to come. And a part of what John did was baptize people in the Jordan River. It was a transitional baptism that was later replaced by believer's baptism. It was a baptism that was incomplete in the sense that it didn't have the full symbolism of what New Testament baptism actually means because the Messiah has not yet been crucified. He has not yet been buried. He has not yet been raised from the dead. This becomes clear to us in Acts chapter 19 when Paul, uh, after the cross and after the resurrection, runs into some of John's disciples, some people who had been baptized by John the Baptist. And here's how this encounter sort of unfolds in Acts 19. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So we had this interesting encounter where Paul, after the resurrection, runs into these people who've been baptized by John the Baptist. By John the Baptist. And Paul says to them, have you been baptized? They said, well, yes, we've been baptized by John. And Paul then explains to them, well, John's baptism isn't a complete baptism. It was a transitional baptism that took place at a particular moment for a particular purpose. But you need to be baptized how? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in obedience to that word, they were rebaptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this baptism of John that, that, that John brings that really sort of sets the initial backdrop uh, for New Testament baptism. It is, in fact, the first time the word baptism, the Greek word baptizo, is used in the Bible. And so here in Acts chapter 2, when we uh, sort of turn over there to verse 36 and following, kind of parachute into the first Christian sermon where Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And the first Christian sermon, the first Christian message, the first Christian appeal for people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ went along these lines. Peter said, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, 
What should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And here we see the first example of really Christian preaching and the Christian call to obedience to the gospel. And it sets the stage for really all of Christian preaching that comes after this in the New Testament. The call of the Christian preacher has always been for people to repent of their sin, place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be baptized as a public profession of that faith in Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus' last words to his disciples were this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, right at the end of Peter's sermon, So those who received his word were baptized. They were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And thus, we set the pattern for New Testament baptism. And the pattern is really simple. The gospel is preached, and the call to people who hear the gospel is to first believe the gospel, that is to receive the gospel, That is to believe it with your mind and to embrace it with your soul. The message of Jesus, dead, buried, resurrected. To believe the gospel. And to repent. To turn from sin. To turn from a life of selfishness. To turn from a life lived only for self. And to turn toward the Lord Jesus Christ. To change the direction of your life. To do a 180 from the direction that you're moving and move toward Christ instead of away from Him. To die to yourself and to come toward Christ. To believe, to repent, and to be baptized. And then to be added to the church. That's how it happened in Acts chapter 2. And that's been the call of the Christian preacher ever since Acts chapter 2, all throughout the New Testament. The call is, here's the gospel, believe it, repent of your sin, be baptized, and be added to the church. This was the example of Paul on Acts chapter 22. We won't take the time to go there, but you can just mark that down. You look at Paul's experience when he was Saul, a sinner who was persecuting the church, and he encounters the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And it's that very pattern that plays out in his life. This kind of a baptism was also a part of the ministry of Jesus in John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. We read this. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So the ministry of Jesus was marked by this same sort of a pattern. He taught the truth. He called people to believe and repent, and they were then baptized and added to the body of Christ. And that really sort of sets the backdrop for us for baptism. And you can track it all through the New Testament, but we won't take the time to do that because there's much more I want to say about this. But what does it mean? What does it mean? If that's the way that we see it emerge in Scripture, if that's the way that we see it sort of come out of the backdrop of the New Testament and the Old Testament, what does this, what does this thing mean? Well, you can read from the Baptist faith and message, which is really our, our baseline a doctrinal statement as a church, it says this, Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith 
in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in the newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is his testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. Baptism, according to our doctrine statement, and according to the New Testament, as an outward symbol of an inward commitment. That's what baptism is. It is an outward symbol of an inward commitment. It is a symbol. It is not a means of grace. That it means, what I mean by that is it symbolizes something that has taken place and that is a present reality in the life, but it is not an event through which God infers some sort of special grace or even salvation itself, as others believe. There is a doctrine that is embraced by many denominations of folks around called the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Say that three times and it will tie your tongue up in a hurry. Baptismal regeneration. It's simply a doctrine that says that a person is regenerated. That is to say that their old self dies and they come to life in Christ at the moment of baptism. That baptism, if you will, is the switch or the trigger that triggers regeneration. That when a person is, is baptized in whatever form or fashion, that in the act of baptizing, an important component of salvation, that is regeneration, takes place through the act. It is in the act of baptism, they would say, that the old man dies and a new person comes to life. And in such a system, baptism then is a requirement for salvation, because to be saved, one must be regenerated. This is sort of foundational to Roman Catholic teaching. Uh, You find traces of it in Anglicanism, the Orthodox Church, the Church of Christ, the Lutheran Church. It is very prevalent in the Mormon Church as well. I'll walk you through just a couple examples of that. Uh, Particular to the Roman Catholic version of this doctrine, baptism is is a critical piece of saving faith. It is in the the act of baptism that the remission of all sins, original and actual, takes place. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that it's in baptism that the remission of temporal punishment takes place. In other words, it's when 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 a person is baptized and they baptize infants, that it's in that particular act that all original sin, that's the sin we're born with, the sin nature, is dealt with. And all the actual sin that's going to be committed in the life is also remitted at that point. What is also remitted at that point is the temporal, that is the the immediate punishment for that sin. They also teach that it's in the act of baptism that, that grace and gifts and virtues from God are infused into the person. And that special graces are conferred in that baptism. They also teach that there's a particular kind, that God impresses a particular kind of character upon the soul in that baptism. It's an interesting view. But if you understand 
baptism to mean those things. That it's in the act of baptism that all sin is, is, is remitted. That original sin is dealt with. That actual sin is dealt with. That the punishment for sin is dealt with. That we're infused with supernatural grace and gifts and virtues from the Lord. And that the impression of the character of Christ is impressed upon the soul in the very act of baptism. If you believe that about it, that baptism, then you would understand why every Roman Catholic would never dream of not having their baby immediately baptized upon birth, right? Because to not have that done would be to leave your precious little one in his or her original sin in danger of the temporal punishment of God without the special grace of God and without the character of Christ impressed upon their little soul. It is a form of baptismal regeneration. The Lutheran view is quite similar to the Catholic view. The, difference, the, the unique difference between the Lutheran view and the Roman Catholic view is that in the Lutheran view, faith is critical to, to, the, to the picture. In the Roman Catholic view, you don't have to have faith. Faith is irrelevant to the whole picture. You just, it's just the act of baptism. Faith may or may not show up later, but it's irrelevant to the act of baptism. In Lutheran baptism, faith is a a critical component. It's in baptism, the Lutheran would teach, that God, quote, creates and strengthens saving faith as the washing of regeneration in which infants and adults are reborn. So it's in the act of baptism that God sort of creates faith and strengthens faith in the heart of the person in the very act. Apart from the act, that does not happen. If you move over to sort of a Presbyterian church view, did some of you grow up in a Presbyterian church? Anyone come out of Presbyterianism? So you've seen something a little different, a few folks who have seen something different. Presbyterians also practice a form of infant baptism, but when Presbyterians do it, they mean something altogether different than what Lutherans or Catholics or Methodists mean when they would do such things. What do Presbyterians mean when they baptize, they understand baptism to be this. If you were to talk to a Presbyterian, they would say, well, here's what baptism is. Baptism in the New Testament is basically a New Testament counter or a New Testament manifestation of what circumcision was in the Old Testament. To just like a Jew uh, in the Old Testament who feared God would, would give birth to children and all their male children would be circumcised as as infants, and they would do that as a sign of the covenant of God, as a sign that they belong to the covenant community of God's people. They would argue that that's what baptism really is in the New Testament, that, that we, when we baptize, it, it's not like the Roman Catholics teach some, some salvific thing. It's not as though God creates some sort of new faith or impresses a particular character in the moment. No, no, no. What it is is it's simply a sign that a person belongs to the covenant community of God's people, just like circumcision did in the Old Testament. Incidentally, what we'll do next week when we practice baby dedication has that meaning. It is a ceremony that indicates the importance of recognizing that children are a gift from the Lord and the critical piece the body of Christ plays in the life of the little ones that God entrusts to our church family. We practice a baby dedication at that point to recognize such things, not a baptism. And the reason we don't practice baptism in that is because... There is not a single example in the New Testament 
of anything, anywhere, that even loosely insinuates a connection between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism. That is a, a, a doctrinal sort of connection that has to be made up and imposed into the text because there's nothing in the Scriptures that point us in that direction. In fact, there's no example uh, of anything even loosely related to that in any of the New Testament. In fact, when you get to like Acts chapter 15, and there's an argument that's, that's sort of bubbled up in the life of the church, and the church is to call a council. The apostles were all there in Jerusalem to try and, and set the record straight. And the real issue is, the real issue is, we've got the gospel going out, and Jews are believing it, and Gentiles are believing it, and you're smashing Jews and Gentiles who formerly hated each other with remarkable racial prejudice, and you're Giving them the gospel, they're being saved, but they're not instantly made perfect. And so when you smash them together into a church body, there's going to be some fireworks, right? Because Jews are, even even at the beginning when they become believers, they haven't abandoned all of their commitments to the Old Testament. And so there's this argument that has bubbled up in the light of that. And the argument is this. Jews who had converted to Christ still believed that circumcision was critical. A critical piece of belonging to God. And they wanted to force all the Gentiles who came to Christ in the church to be circumcised. Now I've been a part of a lot of churches. Not really a lot of churches, but a lot of a, a church uh, a sort of issues in 23 years. And they've been over different things, from the colors of carpets to more significant things. But I can't imagine what it would be like to be in a church where half the people are Gentile and people are trying to tell them, you need to go get, all go get circumcised. Think about that for just a minute. That'll cause a problem in the church, particularly among the men who are saying, uh-uh, no way. Not happening, dude. And, but it was a huge, this is a huge conflict, and it was creating a great division in the church, and it really sort of forms the issue of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And, and you had false teachers going around saying that as well. And so, uh, that would have been a perfect place for the apostles to stand up and say, wait a minute, this is a non-issue. You don't need to worry about circumcision because baptism has now replaced circumcision, right? Just go get baptized and we'll all be happy. But they don't say that. They don't say that. What they do say is, no, the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. And all the Gentile men say, Amen. But they do say to the Gentiles, you need to not be a stumbling block to your Jewish brothers. And they create a compromise. But that would have been a perfect place to say, baptism is now circumcision. Right. But that's not what is said. As we see... In the New Testament, baptism is only for believers. The gospel goes, people believe it, repent of their sin, and then are baptized. That is the meaning. So if it isn't about uh, some sort of baptismal regeneration, if, if baptism doesn't save us, if it doesn't confer on us some special grace, if it doesn't create in us faith or some sort of a thing that we wouldn't get any other way. Why in the world do we baptize? And what does it mean? I'm going to give you a list of what baptism truly means. Here's what it means. It is a symbol of the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. 
the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. Baptism is a symbol. I, 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 I wear a wedding ring because I'm married. I have the wrong one on right now. And three people have asked me about that this morning, so I'm, I'm glad people notice. Um, this is a silicone ring that I usually put on when I do military stuff so that if I'm somewhere stumbling around, I don't get my finger ripped off. I get that ripped off instead. But I just forgot to put the regular one back on. But I wear a ring for a reason. I wear a ring for a reason because it's, it symbolizes something. When you see my ring, what do you immediately know about me? I'm married. That I have made a covenant to a woman somewhere. And I belong to her, she belongs to me. I, I'm not on the market anymore, right? I'm locked in. I'm locked in for life. That it tells you that there was a day at some point in my life when I stood in front of a pastor with my wife in front of witnesses and I made promises to her and she made promises to me and those promises went something along the lines of for better and for worse, for richer and for poorer in sickness and in health until, until death parts us. Until we're rotting corpses in a grave. That's how long we plan to keep this, this promise. The ring that we put on on that day did not make either one of us married. It wasn't the ring that makes you married. It was, the, it was the promises that we made to each other. It was the decision and the choice to love each other in sickness and in health. And we expressed that decision through words to each other. And the rings we put on were a, a symbol so that the whole world knows that that's taken place in our life. Baptism is very similar. Baptism is a symbol. It is an outward symbol to the world that we've made a particular decision in our heart to entrust ourselves to Christ, that we have made commitments to our spiritual bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have given Him our heart and our life and have received Him as Lord and Savior. We've expressed that with our mouths to other people and we are baptized as a public symbol like a wedding ring so that the whole world knows where we stand. This is a symbol of the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried with Him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in His death, like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection, like His. When I was baptized, I was, I was a, a young boy. And I stood in the waters. And there was a pastor who took me under the water and he brought me back up. And that was a vivid, symbolic act that said to the world as a little boy that I believed in the death burial and resurrection of Jesus and that I believed in my heart that when I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that I too died to my sin Christ has washed me clean and I have come alive to him and one day I'm going to live even though my body dies because Christ has been raised I too am going to be raised when I'm baptized I'm saying that's what I believe Charles Spurgeon said this he said, what connection has this baptism with faith? I think it has just this. Baptism is the avowal of faith. The man was Christ's soldier, but now in baptism he puts on his regimentals. The man believed in Christ, but his faith remained between God and his soul. In baptism, he says to the baptizer, I believe in Jesus Christ. 
And he says to the church, I unite with you as a believer in the common truths of Christianity. And he says to the onlooker, whatever you may do as for me, I will serve the Lord. Baptism is for the believer our public profession of faith. Now what I grew up with was sort of a perversion of this in a lot of ways by well-meaning people. The way I grew up, when you went to church, the preacher preached like I do, and he would always end his sermons with some sort of a call to faith in Christ. And and the call would always sound about the same, and it would always be, if you want to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, then you need to come down the aisle while we're singing Just As I Am, or occasionally something else, at the end. And you need to walk down here, and you need to come talk to me at the front of the church and tell me that you want to be saved. Everybody would stand, and we would sing Just As I Am. Sometimes we would sing all those verses a couple of times. Do you remember that? And we'd be kind of peeking out like, you know, is anybody going up there? If somebody tell the poor man, nobody's coming today. So we can stop the song. I've been the poor man, too, by the way. Um, But often in that sort of an appeal, I would hear the pastor say things like, Listen, don't be ashamed of the Lord. Make your profession public and come down the aisle. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. And they would quote the passage where it says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you, kind of a thing. And it was to coerce people to step out of their aisles and come down. And and inadvertently, what that taught people was that the public profession of our faith is to step out of an aisle and walk down to the front and talk to the preacher in the church service. Nowhere in the Bible is that our profession of faith. Our profession of faith for a Christian has always been baptism. It's never been some sort of a, of a church methodology to sort of corral people into making a confession for Christ. When we do things like that as our methodology in the church, we undercut the value of baptism. It's why we don't do it here that way. For a Christian, the way that we say to the world, we belong to the Christ, the way that we say we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus... The way that we proclaim to the world that we believe when we die we will be raised with Christ in, 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 for everlasting life is we get in the water and we get baptized. That is our profession of our faith in the Lord Jesus. Secondly, baptism is a symbol of this. It symbolizes the believer's death to sin, his burial of the old life, and his resurrection to walk in newness of life. That Romans 6 passage, we were buried with him in baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I tell people this when when we talk about baptism before they are actually baptized. You know, when you step in the water, you're telling the world that you believe something about Jesus. But when you step in the water, you're also telling the world that something has happened inside of you. It's not just that you believe the facts of the gospel, but you're also proclaiming that what happened to Jesus also happened to me in a spiritual sense. I have died to my old self. I have buried that old self, never to rise again. Christ has washed away my sin, and He has made me a new person. I used to love my sin, now I love Christ. I used to be devoted to myself, now I'm devoted to Christ. I used to only want what I wanted, now I want what Christ wants. I used to live by my own set of rules, now I live to obey the rules of my Master and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I am not who I used to be. I'm somebody new by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's changed me, and I'm not the same man. I am not the same woman. 
Baptism means that. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Baptism signals and signifies to the whole world, I have a new master, and it's not me. I have a new master, and it's the Lord Jesus. He's my master. He's redeemed me. He's regenerated me. He is in the process of sanctifying me, and I belong to Him. At this very moment, I'm loyal to Christ, and I'm loyal to Christ alone. I am free from my sin. I am completely free from the penalty of sin because Christ has died in my place. I am, I am being progressively free day to day by the, uh, from the power of sin, by the work of the Holy Spirit through Christ in my life. And one day, at the end of my life, I'm going to be free completely from the presence of sin when the Lord Jesus Christ takes me to be with Him forever. And my salvation finds its fulfillment forever in Him. Baptism means that. Baptism also symbolizes a believer's faith in the final resurrection from the dead. We read it a moment ago in Romans 6, 5. If we've been united with Him in death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Every Christian funeral I do, we talk about that. Your beloved one is dead, and they're in the grave. And that body is never going to come alive in this world again. But there is a resurrection to come. Because Christ has been raised, she will be raised with Him and like Him. Baptism also symbolizes a believer's desire to be publicly identified with Christ and His church. A desire to be publicly identified with Christ and His church. When a person is baptized, they are making a public statement that they are identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just me and Jesus private in my own home in the corner. It is me and Jesus, and I want the world to know it. You know, in our culture, there's really no big deal with that. But you understand in parts of the world, when a person is baptized, it's in that moment that their lives are put at risk. That there is a mark on their head. You go to the Muslim world right now in many parts of our planet, and for a person to go out and be publicly baptized and publicly to identify with Christ is to say publicly, I belong to Christ and I reject Islam is a way to say you're a marked person for death, and there's a price to be paid for it. And you understand that people in those places of the world, in those cultures of the world, they don't take this stuff lightly. It's not something to be trivialized. And yet... All over the world today, people in places just like that are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and they joyfully and gladly are publicly baptized because come what may, they want to identify themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever it costs. And they do it. And some of them pay the ultimate price for it. It is also the way in which we identify with the church. We identify with Christ and we also identify with His church. That was what Paul, what Peter was preaching at Pentecost. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ, repent and be baptized and be added to the church. And that's exactly what happened. People believe the gospel, they identify with Jesus, and then they identify with His body, the church. They become part of the body of Christ. Michael Green said this, It's important to stress this corporate side of baptism. Nobody is meant to be a Christian on their own. We belong to one another, and the mark of belonging is baptism. 
That is an important message for us in our local churches. Baptism is not a solitary thing marking me out as a Christian on my own. It is a corporate thing marking us as a part of the body of Christ. That's what baptism means. That's what it symbolizes. And we're commanded to do it. To identify with Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection. To identify to the world that we've died to our old self and we're alive to Christ. To identify to the whole world and declare that we don't believe this world is all that there is. That there's another world. And when this body dies, we're going to come to life forever. Just like our Lord and Savior Jesus did. The grave isn't the end for us. And it holds no bondage over us. Because Christ has died and been raised again. And we publicly and proudly say, we belong to Jesus. And we joyfully are a part of His body, the body of Christ. That's what baptism means. And that's why it's important. Let me ask you a question this morning. If you've genuinely been saved, that is, you've heard the gospel of Jesus, you've understood what Christ has done for you on the cross, you've understood who He is, the Son of God, you've understood that He lived a perfect life, you've understood that He was crucified for your sins, that He was buried, and that He came to new life three days later, and now is risen and sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning and awaiting His return. You've understood those things. If you've truly understood those things and committed your life to Christ, let me ask you this question. Why would you not be scrambling to be baptized as soon as possible? What good reason would there be for you to not be baptized? What good reason would there be for a believer who truly believes those things and who has truly experienced the regenerating work of Christ by His Spirit in our life? What good reason would we have for not wanting the whole world to know that? What good reason could we possibly have for not wanting to declare to the whole world this glorious thing that has taken place in our life? What good reason could we possibly muster that we could justify not publicly declaring our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and our belief in the gospel that has saved us? I would submit to you there is no good reason except disobedience. Maybe embarrassment. Maybe some other thing has held you back. But the call of the New Testament is to believe the gospel, to repent, to be baptized, and to be added to the church. That should be the track record and the testimony of our lives. If it's not the track record and the testimony of your life, then really you just need to stop this morning and ask the question, why? Why isn't it? Am I not convinced from Scripture that that's true? There's more that we could talk about on that, and I'd be happy to talk with you about it. Or is there some other reason? Is it some silly, selfish reason? Is it just pride? Is it just loyalty to some tradition I grew up with that taught me incorrectly? Is it just embarrassment? Is it just something else that has kept you back from obeying Christ in the most basic and first command for a believer to be baptized? If so, then I call you this morning. Believe the gospel. Repent of your sin. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and be added to His church so that you can walk in right relationship with Him and be in obedience to the call of your Savior. Baptism is to happen 
as quickly as possible after a person is saved. For baptism to have any of that meaning, a person has to have heard the gospel, they have to have believed the gospel, repented and entrusted their lives to Christ. Baptism before that has no meaning. Because baptism is all about the symbolism of what Jesus has done. To do it to a sinner who has not repented and trusted Christ is to give him a bath. It is not to baptize them. They get in the water a wet sinner and they come out a wet sinner. They've just done a religious ceremony. And perhaps even worse, they've deceived themselves or been deceived into believing that somehow now that equates to salvation of their soul. And right now, today, we have thousands upon thousands of people running around in our culture who have been baptized in a Christian church who have never believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, as a pastor who's been taking the gospel for 23 years now, that they are the hardest people in our culture to reach with the true gospel because somebody somewhere baptized them and told them that they were saved. And they believed that. Somehow that act had salvific power in their life and they never believed the gospel they never repented of their sins and they never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ hardest people to reach baptism is only proper and it only has the symbolism that the New Testament attaches to it after a person repents and believes the gospel and that's the way it should be practiced and that is the way we practice it so the call this morning is believe the gospel and be baptized and be added to the church and walk in obedience to Christ he died for you live for him joyfully and publicly declaring that for all the world to see in the way that he has called you to declare it let's pray Lord Jesus we've been looking at you in the, in the, the, the letter of Hebrews We've been meditating on your glory and your splendor, how you're greater than the angels, how you're the one who created the world. And as we trek our way through that letter even more, we're going to see time and time again in vivid color how you were not only our priest, but you were the sacrifice who shed his blood, who gave his life for us, who died that we might live who was buried and raised that we might be raised eternal. You're the one who transforms us from being old people who live for ourselves to being new people who live for you. And you've called us to declare that reality in our lives through baptism. You've called us to make a public statement for the world. Not by walking down the aisle of a church, not by going through some religious ceremony, but by being baptized. You've called us to declare our allegiance to you publicly that way. Oh, in our culture, it costs nothing to do that. But we understand that around the world, there are people who pay a price for it, a dear price. And yet we let silly things here get in the way of us being baptized. I pray for my friends who are here today, Lord, those who know you, who have repented of their sin, who have believed the gospel and entrusted their lives to you, but have never been baptized as a public declaration of that for the world. I pray that you would, by your Spirit, convince them 
that they're walking in disobedience and that they need to obey you in this. Lord, for the ones who, who are here this morning who don't know you, who've maybe heard the gospel over and over, they, they, they believe facts about you, but they've never come to that place of personal commitment. They've never come to the place where they're ready to make a, a confession of faith, where they've decided in their hearts to abandon their own selfish ways and to embrace you as their Lord and Savior. They've considered you, but they've never received you. I pray that in this very moment, you would draw them to yourself, that you would break down every barrier, that right now, they would confess their sin, and that they would confess you as their only hope. They would cry out to you to save their soul, and that you would be faithful to do so, just as you promised. Lord, do your work in us this morning, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.